Section eight of Catherine Lauderdale, Volume two, by Francis Marion Crawford. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Lynn Thompson. Chapter twenty three. It was nearly one o'clock when John Ralston let Dr. Ralph out of the house and returned to his own room. He found his mother standing there opposite the door as he entered and her eyes had met his even before he had passed the threshold She came forward to meet him and without a word laid her two hands upon his shoulders and hid her face against his torn coat He put one arm around her and gently stroked her head with the other hand But he looked straight before him at the bright globe of the gaslight and said nothing there was an unsettled expression on his pale face he did not wish to seem triumphant and he did not wish that his anger against her might subside immediately and be altogether forgotten but although he had enough control of his outward self to say nothing and to touch her tenderly the part of him that had been so deeply wounded was not to be healed in a moment her doubt more her openly and scornfully outspoken disbelief had been the very last straw that day it had been hard just when he had been doing his best to reform to be accused by everyone from hamilton bright his friend to the people on the horse car but it had been hardest of all to be accused by his mother and not to be believed even on his pledged word that was a very different matter to a man of a naturally melancholic and brooding temper as john ralston was illusions have a very great value such men have few of them as a rule and regard them as possessions with which no one has any right to interfere they ask little or nothing of the world at large except to be allowed to follow their own inclinations and worship their own idols in their own way but of their idols they ask much and often give them little in return except acts of idolatry and the first thing they ask whether they express the demand openly or not is that their idols should believe in them in spite of everyone and everything they are not as a rule capricious men they cannot replace one object of adoration by another at short notice perhaps the foundation of such characters is a sort of honourable selfishness a desire to keep what they care for to themselves beyond the reach of everyone else together with an inward conviction that their love is eminently worth having from the mere fact that they do not bestow it lightly when the idol expresses a human and pardonable doubt in their sincerity an illusion is injured if not destroyed even when that doubt is well founded but when the doubt is groundless it makes a bad wound which leaves an ugly scar if it ever heals at all john ralston was very like his mother and she knew it and understood instinctively that words could be of no use there was nothing to be done but to throw herself upon his mercy as it were and to trust that he would forgive an injury which nothing could repair and john understood this and did his best to meet her halfway for he loved her very much but he could not help the expression on his face not being good at masking nor at playing any part she womanly could have done that better than he she wished to act no comedy however the thing was real 
and true, and she was distressed beyond measure. She looked up at his face and saw what was in his mind, and she knew that for the present she could do nothing. Then she gently kissed the sleeve of his coat and withdrew her hands from him. "'You're wet, Jack,' she said, trying to speak naturally. "'Go to bed, and I'll bring you something to eat and something hot to drink.' "'No, mother, thank you. I don't want anything. But I think I'll go to bed. Good night.' "'Let me bring you something.' "'No, thank you. I'd rather not. It's all right, mother. Don't worry.' It was hard to say even that little just then, but he did as well as he could. Then he kissed her on the forehead and opened the door for her. She bent her head low as she passed him, but she did not look up. Half an hour later, when John was about to put out his light, he heard a little clinking of glasses and silver on a tray outside his door. Then there was a knock. "'I've brought you something to eat, Jack,' said his mother's voice. "'Just what I could find.' John turned as he was crossing the room, a gaunt figure in his loose, striped flannels, and hesitated a moment before he spoke. "'Oh, thank you very much,' he answered. "'Would you kindly set it down? I'll take it in presently. It's very good of you, mother. Thank you. Good night again.' He heard her set down the tray, and the things rattled and clinked. "'It's here when you want it,' said the voice. He fancied there was a sigh after the words, and two or three seconds passed before the sound of softly departing footsteps followed. He listened with a weary look in his eyes, then went to the fireplace and leaned against the mantelpiece for a moment. As though making an effort, he turned again and went to the door, and opened it, and brought in the tray. There were dainty things on it, daintily arranged. There was also a small decanter of whiskey, a pint of claret, and a little jug of hot water. John set the tray upon one end of his writing-table, and looked at it with an odd, sour smile. He was really so tired that he wanted neither food nor drink, and the sight of both in abundance was almost nauseous to him. He reflected that the servant would take away the things in the morning, and that his mother would never know whether he had taken what she had brought him or not, unless she asked him, which was impossible. He took up the tray again, set it down on the floor in a corner, and instead of going to bed, seated himself at his writing-table. It seemed best to write to Catherine and send his letter early in the morning. It was hard work, and he could scarcely see the words he wrote, for the pain in his head was becoming excruciating. It was necessarily a long letter, too, and a complicated one, and his command of the English language seemed gone from him. Nevertheless, he plodded on diligently, telling as nearly as he could remember what had happened to him since he had left Catherine's door at three o'clock in the afternoon, up to the moment when Dr. Routh had pronounced his verdict. It was not well written, but on the whole it was a thoroughly clear account of events, so far as he himself could be said to know what had happened to him. He addressed the letter and put a special delivery stamp upon it, thinking that this would be a means of sending it to its destination quickly, without attracting so much attention to it as though he should send a messenger himself. Then he put out the gas drew up the shades so that the morning light should wake him early, in spite of his exhaustion, and at last went to bed. 
It was unfortunate that the messenger who took the specially stamped letter to Clinton Place on the following morning should have rung the bell exactly when he did, that is to say, at the precise moment when Alexander Junior was putting on his overcoat and overshoes in the entry. It was natural enough that Mr. Lauderdale should open the door himself and confront the boy, who held up the letter to him with the little book in which the receipt was to be signed. It was the worse for the boy, because Catherine would have given him five or ten cents for himself, whereas Alexander Junior signed the receipt, handed it back, and shut the door in the boy's face. And it was very much the worse for John Ralston, since Mr. Lauderdale, having looked at the handwriting and recognised it, put the letter into his pocket without a word to anyone, and went down town for the day. Now it was his intention to do the thing which was right according to his point of view. He was as honourable a man, in his own unprejudiced opinion, as any living, and he would no more have forfeited his right to congratulate himself upon his uprightness than he would have given ten cents to the messenger boy, or a holiday to a clerk or a subscription for anything except his pew in church. The latter was really a subscription to his own character, and therefore not an extravagance. It would never have entered into his mind that he could possibly break the seal of Ralston's specially stamped envelope. The letter was as safe in his pocket as though it had been put away in his own box at the safe deposit, where there were so many curious things of which no one but Alexander Junior knew anything but he did not intend that his daughter should ever read it either. He disapproved of John from the very bottom of his heart, partly because he did, which was an excellent reason, partly because there could be no question as to John's mode of life, and partly because he had once lost his temper when John had managed to keep his own. So far as he allowed himself to swear, he had sworn that John should never marry Catherine, unless, indeed, John should inherit a much larger share of Robert Lauderdale's money than was just, in which case justice itself would make it right to enter into a matrimonial alliance with the millions. Meanwhile, however, Robert the Rich was an exceedingly healthy old man. Under present circumstances, therefore, if accident threw into his hands one of Ralston's letters to Catherine, it was clearly the duty of such a perfectly upright and well-conducted father as Alexander Junior to hinder it from reaching its destination. Only one question as to his conduct presented itself to his mind, and he occupied the day in solving it. Should he quietly destroy the letter and say nothing about it to anyone, or should he tell Catherine that he had it, and burn it in her presence after showing her that it was unopened? his conscience played an important part in his life though robert lauderdale secretly believed that he had none at all and his conscience bade him be quite frank about what he had done and destroy the letter under catherine's own eyes he took it from his pocket as he sat in his brilliantly polished chair before his shiny table under the vivid snow glare which fell upon him through his magnificent plate-glass windows he looked at it again turned it over thoughtfully, and returned it at last to his pocket, where it remained until he came home late in the afternoon. While he sipped his glass of iced water at luncheon-time, he prepared a little speech, which he repeated to himself several times in the course of the day. In the meantime, Catherine, 
not suspecting that John had written to her, and of course utterly ignorant of the truth about his doings on the preceding day, felt that she must find some occupation, no matter how trivial, to take her mind out of the strong current of painful thought, which must at last draw her down into the very vortex of despair's own whirlpool. It seemed to her that she had never before even faintly guessed the meaning of pain, nor the unknown extent of possible mental suffering. As for forming any resolution, or even distinguishing the direction of her probable course in the immediate future, she was utterly incapable of any such effort of thought. The longing for total annihilation was perhaps uppermost among her instincts just then, as it often is with men and women, who have been at once bitterly disappointed and deeply wounded, and who find themselves in a position from which no escape seems possible. Catherine wished with all her young heart that the world were a lighted candle and that she could blow it out. It must not be believed, however, that her love for John Ralston had disappeared as suddenly and totally as she should have liked to extinguish the universe. It had not been of sudden growth, nor of capricious blooming. Its roots were deep, its stem was strong, its flowers were sweet, and the blight which had fallen upon it was the more cruel. A frost-bitten rose-tree is a sadder sight than a withered mushroom or a blade of dried grass. It was real, honest, unsuspecting, strong, maidenly love, and it stood there still, in the midst of her heart, hanging its head in the cold, while she gazed at it and wondered, and choked with anguish but she could not lift her hand to prop it nor to cover it and warm it again still less to root it up and burn it she could only try to escape from seeing it and she resolutely set about making the attempt she left her room and went downstairs treading more softly as she passed the door of the room in which her mother worked during the morning hours she did not wish to see her again at present and as she descended, she could not help thinking with wonder of the sudden and unaccountable change in their relations. She entered the library, but though it was warm, it had that chilly look about it which rooms principally used in the evening generally have when there is no fire in them. The snow glare was on everything, too, and made it worse. She stood a moment in hesitation before the writing-table, and laid her hand uncertainly, upon a sheet of writing-paper but she realized that she could not write to john and she turned away almost immediately what could she have written it was easy to talk to herself of a letter it was quite another matter to find words or even to discover the meaning of her own thoughts she did not wish to see him if she wished anything it was that she might never see him again nothing could have been much worse than to meet him just then and talking on paper was next to talking in fact it all rushed back upon her as she moved away and she paused a moment and steadied herself against her favorite chair by the empty fireplace then she raised her head again proudly and left the room looking straight before her there was nothing to be done but to go out the loneliness of the house was absolutely intolerable and she could not wander about in such an aimless fashion all day long Again she went upstairs to her room to put on her hat and things. Mechanically she took the hat she had worn on the previous day, 
but as she stood before the mirror and caught sight of it she suddenly took it from her head again and threw it behind her with a passionate gesture stared at herself a moment and then buried her face in her hands she had unconsciously put on the same frock as yesterday the frock in which she had been married it was the rough gray woolen one she had been wearing every day and there were the same simple little ornaments the small silver pin at her throat the tiny gold bar of her thin watch chain at the third button from the top the hat had made it complete just as she had been married she could not bear that a few moments later she rose and without looking at herself in the glass began to change her clothes she dressed herself entirely in black put on a black hat and a gold pin and took a new pair of brown gloves from a drawer there was a relief now in her altered appearance as she fastened her veil she felt that she could behave differently if she could get rid of the outward things which reminded her of yesterday it is not wise to reflect contemptuously upon the smallness of things which influence passionate people at great moments in their lives it needs less to send a fast express off the track if the obstacle be just so placed as to cause an accident than it does to upset a freight train going at twelve miles an hour Catherine descended the stairs again with a firm step holding her head higher than before and with quite a different look in her eyes she had put on a sort of shell with her black clothes it seemed to conceal her real self from the outer world the self that had worn rough gray woolen and a silver pin and had been married to john ralston yesterday morning she did not even take the trouble to tread softly as she passed her mother's studio for she felt able to face any one all at once if john himself had been standing in the entry below and if she had come upon him suddenly she should have known how to meet him and what to say she would have hurt him and would have been glad of it with all of her what right had john ralston to ruin her life but john was not there nor was there any possibility of her meeting him that morning he had shut himself up in his room and was waiting for her answer to the letter which alexander lauderdale had taken down town in his pocket and which he meant to burn before her eyes that evening after delivering his little speech it was not probable that john would go out of the house until he was convinced that no answer was to be expected catherine went out into the street and paused on the last step the snow was deep everywhere and wet and clinging no attempt had as yet been made to clear it away though the horse cars had ploughed their black channel through and it had been shoveled off the pavements before some of the houses there was a slushy muddiness about it where it was not still white which promised ill for a walk catherine knew exactly what washington square would be like on such a morning the little birds would all be draggled and cold the leafless twigs would be dripping the paths would be impracticable and all the american boys would be snowballing the italian and french boys from south fifth avenue the university building would look more than usual like a sepulchre to let and waverley place would be more savagely respectable than ever as its quiet red brick houses fronted the snow overhead the sky was of a uniform gray it was impossible to tell from any increase of light where the sun ought to be the air was damp and cold and all the noises of the street were muffled far away and out of sight a hand organ was playing 
Aquella Morea Ondado, an air which Catherine most especially and heartily detested. There was something ghostly in the sound, as though the wretched instrument were grinding itself to death out of sheer weariness. Catherine thought that if the world were making music in its orbit that morning, the noise must be as melancholy and as jarring as that of the miserable hurdy-gurdy. She thought vaguely, too, of the poor old man who had stood every day for years with his back to the railings on the south side of West 14th Street, before you come to 6th Avenue, feebly turning the handle of a little box which seems to be full of broken strings, which something stirs up into a scarcely audible jangle at every sixth or seventh revolution. He has yellowish-gray hair, long and thick, and is generally bareheaded. She felt inclined to go and see whether he were there now, in the wet snow, with his torn shoes and his blind eyes, that could not feel the glare. She found herself thinking of all the many familiar figures of distress, just below the surface of the golden stream, as it were, looking up out of it with pitiful, appealing faces, and without which New York could not be itself. Her father said they made a good living out of their starving appearance, and firmly refused to encourage what he called pauperism by what other people called charity. Even if they were really poor, he said, they probably deserved to be, and were only reaping the fruit of their own improvidence, a deduction which did not appeal to Catherine. She turned eastwards, and would have walked up to 14th Street in order to give the hurdy-gurdy beggar something, had she not remembered almost immediately that she had no money with her. She never had any, except what her mother gave her for her small expenses, and during the last few days she had not cared to ask for any. In very economically conducted families, the reluctance to ask for small sums is generally either the sign of a quarrel or the highest expression of sympathetic consideration. Every family has its private barometer in which money takes the place of mercury. Catherine suddenly remembered that she had promised Crowdie another sitting at eleven o'clock on Friday. It was the day, and it was the hour, and though by no means sure that she would enter the house when she reached Lafayette Place, she turned in that direction and walked on, picking her way across the streets as well as she could. The last time she had gone to Crowdie's, she had gone with John, who had left her at the door in order to go in search of a clergyman. She remembered that as she went along, and she chose the side of the street opposite to the one on which she had gone with Ralston. At the door of Crowdie's house she hesitated again. Crowdie was one of the gossips. It was he who had told the story of John's quarrel with Bright. It seemed as though he must be more repulsive to her than ever. On the other hand, she realized that if she failed to appear as she had promised, he would naturally connect her absence with what had happened to Ralston. He could hardly be blamed for that, she thought, but she would not have such a story repeated if she could help it. She felt very brave and very unlike the Catherine Lauderdale of two hours earlier, and after a moment's thought she rang the bell and was admitted immediately. Hester Crowdie was just coming down the stairs and greeted Catherine before reaching her. She seemed annoyed about something, Catherine thought. There was a little bright colour in her pale cheeks, and her dark eyes gleamed angrily. "'I'm so glad you've come!' she exclaimed, helping her friend to take off her heavy coat. "'Come in with me for a minute, won't you?' "'What's the matter?' asked Catherine, going with her into the little front room. "'You look angry.' 
Oh, it's nothing. I'm so foolish, you know. It's silly of me. Sit down. What is it, dear? asked Catherine affectionately, as she sat down beside Hester upon a little sofa. Have you and he been quarrelling? Quarrelling? Hester laughed gaily. No, indeed, that's impossible. No, we were all by ourselves. Walter was singing over his work, and I was just lying amongst the cushions and listening and thinking how heavenly it was. And that stupid Mr. Griggs came in and spoiled it all. So I came away in disgust. I was so angry just for a minute. I could have killed him. Poor dear. Catherine could not help smiling at the story. Oh, of course you laugh at me. Everybody does. But what do I care? I love him, and I love his voice, and I love to be all alone with him up there under the sky, and at night, too, when there's a full moon. You have no idea how beautiful it is. And then I always think that the snowy days, when I can't go out on foot, belong especially to me. You're different. I knew you were coming at eleven, but that horrid Mr. Griggs. Poor Mr. Griggs, if he could only hear you. Walter pretends to like him. That's one of the few points on which we shall never agree. There's nothing against him, I know, and he's rather modest, considering how he has been talked about and all that. But one doesn't like one's husband's old friends to come bothering, you know, and getting in the way when one wants to be alone with him. Oh, no, I've nothing against the poor man, only that I hate him. How are you, dearest, after the ball last night? You seemed awfully tired when I brought you home. As for me, I'm worn out. I never closed my eyes till Walter came home. He danced the cotillion with your mother. Didn't you think he was looking ill? I did. There was one moment when I was just a little afraid that— you know, that something might happen to him, as it did the other day. Did you notice anything? No, answered Catherine, thoughtfully. He's naturally pale. Don't you think that just happened once, and isn't likely to occur again? He's been perfectly well ever since Monday, hasn't he? Oh, yes, perfectly, but you know it's always on my mind now. I want to be with him more than ever. I suppose that accounts for my being so angry with poor Mr. Griggs. I think I'd ask him to stay to luncheon if I were sure he'd go away the minute it's over. Shouldn't you like to stay, dear? Shall I ask him? That will just make four. Do. I shall feel that I've atoned for being so horrid about him. I wish you would. Catherine did not answer at once. The vision of her luncheon at home rose disagreeably before her. There would be her mother and her grandfather, and probably Charlotte. The latter was quite sure to have heard something about John— and would, of course, seize the occasion to make unpleasant remarks. This consideration was a decisive argument. "'Dear,' she said at last, "'if you really want me, I think I will stay. Only I don't want to be in the way like Mr. Griggs. You must send me away when you've had enough of me.' "'Catherine, what an idea! I only wish you would stay for ever.' "'Oh, no, you don't,' answered Catherine, with a smile. Hester rang the bell and the immaculate and magnificent Fletcher appeared to receive her orders about the luncheon. Catherine, meanwhile, began to wonder at herself. She was so unlike what she had been a few hours earlier, in the morning, alone in her room. She wondered whether, after all, she were not heartless, or whether the memory of all that had lately happened to her might not be softened, like that of a bad dream, which is horrible while it lasts, and at which one laughs at breakfast, knowing that it has had no reality. 
had her marriage any reality last night before the ball the question would have seemed blasphemous it presented itself quite naturally just now what value had that contract what power had the words of any man priest or layman to tie her forever to one who had not the common decency to behave like a gentleman and to keep his appointment with her on the same evening on the evening of their wedding day was there a mysterious magic in the mere words which made them like a witch's spell in a fairy story she had not seen him since what was he doing had he not even enough respect for her to send her a line of apology merely what any man would have sent who had missed an appointment had she sold her soul into bondage for the term of her natural life by uttering two words i will it was only her soul after all she had not seen his face save for a moment at her own door in the afternoon did he think that since they had been married he need not have even the most common consideration for her it seemed so what had she dreamed what had she imagined during all those weeks and months before last monday while she had been making up her mind that she would sacrifice anything and everything for the sake of making him happy she could not be mistaken now for she was thinking it all over quite coldly during these two minutes while hester was speaking to the butler she was more than cold she was indifferent she could have gone back to her room and put on her grey frock and the little silver pin again and could have looked at herself in the mirror for an hour without any sensation but that of wonder amazement at her own folly talk of love there was love between walter crowdie and his wife hester could not be with any one for five minutes without speaking of him and as for crowdie himself he was infatuated everybody said so catherine pardoned him his pale face his red lips and the incomprehensible repulsion she felt for him because he loved his wife. End of chapter 23